This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's the kind of thing some families only dream about, moving to another country just for the experience of it. A year and a half ago, David De La Garza, his wife and their two kids, left with a mix of emotions. It was scary. You know, we were picking up our family from Colorado and from the United States and moving them across an ocean to a place 7,000 miles away. It was very exciting in some ways that we were able to do this and to show our kids what it's like to grow up in a different place. Now, where they moved wasn't totally foreign to them, as De La Garza told me on Skype. We visited here a few years ago, and we just loved it. We loved New Zealand. We loved the people here. We loved the, the country, the mountains, and it's the most beautiful place that we've ever seen. And where did you wind up? We are in Christchurch, New Zealand. Christchurch, where late last week, a gunman opened fire on two mosques, killing at least 50 people. It's been a rough few days. Um, I feel like in the U.S., people are used to this sort of thing happening to a certain degree. You know, it's not a complete shock when something happens anymore. But here, it's uh, people are, they're just shocked. No one ever expected this sort of thing to happen in New Zealand. You wrote a Facebook post just after the shooting. And you write, one of the things I love about New Zealand is that there is a certain innocence here. Talk to me about that and about whether that changes now. It's one of the things that I really adored about New Zealand. You walk around and when you see police on the streets, they're not carrying guns. Kids here kind of run around on the streets the way they might have in the U.S. back in the 60s or 70s. You also write, no airport security checks are required to board commuter flights. You just show up at the airport and step on the plane. That's something of a throwback for an American, huh? Absolutely. And the first time I went to an airport and got on a commuter flight, I actually thought I'd done something wrong. I had this moment where I sat down on the plane and it hit me that I hadn't gone through security. And I was trying to figure out where I went wrong, and I was afraid that someone was going to come and haul me off the plane for having circumvented security. But for the smaller planes, you can walk right onto the plane. It's a special kind of freedom. And the question is, will that freedom persist? I think it's hard to really get a sense for how things are going to change. There's a lot of people here that say that what happened was a one-off. You know, it's someone that came from Australia and did this, and We shouldn't change our way of living over here just because of this one incident, but I suspect things are certainly going to change here. I would be surprised if we keep seeing police on the street without guns. I would be surprised if we have no airport security on commuter flights for the time being. I think parents are going to be holding their kids a lot closer to home, at least in the near future. You also write in this Facebook post, Christchurch is no stranger to tragedy. Eight years ago, a powerful earthquake claimed 185 lives, injured thousands, and effectively destroyed the city as it had been. My goodness, it it does open up another, a new wound. Absolutely. A lot of people here, I think, hearing the sirens on the streets, hearing the helicopters overhead, it, it reopens those kind of feelings of grief and of loss. And it's another level of tragedy on top of it. There's an odd feeling in town, you say. People are quiet and subdued. We greet each other with polite smiles and knowing eyes. Everyone is in shock and processing what happened. And and you say, unfortunately, I've experienced this before. It's the same feeling we felt in Denver following the Columbine and Aurora shootings. It's the same feeling you write the entire United States felt following 9-11. 
David, I, I have to ask if there's a part of you that just feels like this is kind of dogging you, kind of chasing you. You come from Colorado, which is synonymous with these mass shootings. You go to a place where you think that's not part of the reality, but has become. And I would definitely say that's part of the shock for me, is we moved to New Zealand and had kind of thought that we'd gotten away from that sort of thing. For all the ups and downs of living here, one of the things that I continually had in mind was that this is a very safe place to be. And so to have something happen literally blocks away from where we live has been just, it's been difficult. What are you telling your kids? How old are they? My son is uh, five and my daughter's two. So obviously the two-year-old, she doesn't really know anything about what's going on. To her, it was just uh, the lockdown day was a long day at daycare. My son kind of has a sense that something happened, and we're answering the questions that he asks, and we're not providing a whole lot of additional information on top of that, but he knows that there were some bad people in town, and they hurt a lot of people, and that a lot of people are very sad about it. Have you been on the street and perhaps run across someone who is Muslim? And I, I wonder what your interaction might be. Yeah, and they... we. Uh, see them on the streets. I was out at the um, memorial site just yesterday, and there was a large crowd of Muslims on the street. And it's a feeling of compassion. Yeah, I, I want to hug them. I want to tell them that it's going to be all right and that they are accepted and they have a place here. One of the things that I've been most uh, proud of this country, really, is the way that they've reacted. Through this horror, it's been really inspiring to see the messages about love and compassion. And you walk down to the memorial and you see thousands and thousands of flowers and hundreds of signs all preaching love, all preaching compassion, all telling um, the Muslims that they are wanted here. They're part of our community. We want them. I think we see some of that in the United States after shootings. I feel like the real stark difference is how quickly the question of gun control has been, it seems to me, widely tackled in New Zealand. Uh, yes, and I think it remains to be seen how what actually ends up happening with, with gun control. But I feel like in the U.S., after something like this happens, people kind of retreat to their political corners. People kind of back into their pre-existing positions on gun control and um, really any all their political positions. Here, it's been quite interesting to see how the country has come together and you see our political leaders all standing up and standing together and saying they're going to tackle this. You have the equivalent of a green card in New Zealand and are on a pathway to citizenship. I wonder if what has happened in Christchurch changes your sense of how long you may stay in that community? Uh, right now, I consider Christchurch home. Whether we're here for another few years or until my kids graduate high school remains to be seen. And a lot of it has to do with kind of how we feel about the community. Right now, no. If anything, it strengthens my commitment to being here. The way that I've seen the people of New Zealand react, the way that they've reacted with the compassion and love, and it really makes me feel like this is a community that I want to be a part of. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. David De La Garza, who grew up in Colorado, moved his family to Christchurch, New Zealand, now the site of a mass shooting. We spoke over Skype.
John Hickenlooper has been checking off a lot of boxes on the How to Be a Presidential Candidate list. There are the morning show appearances. We're going to turn now to a new face jumping into the White House race. Two-term Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper joined a growing Democratic field early this morning. And the late-night programs. This is, I don't need to tell you, a very crowded field. Uh, One of the issues for anyone is name recognition. Um, You're coming into it with a name that is uh, hard to recognize (laughs) even when you see it written down. Do you think Hickenlooper is helpful at a time like this as a last name? I wouldn't say that it actually, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It's more like a wishbone that gets stuck in the gullet. Such a metaphor. Tonight, Hickenlooper takes questions during a televised town hall from CNN in Atlanta. He's trying to build momentum and relevance in a crowded Democratic primary field. Uh, We wanted to talk to someone who's already been down this path, another former Western governor and Democrat, Bill Richardson of New Mexico. He ran for president in 08. And, Governor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Ryan. CNN is hosting a series of these town halls with different candidates. We are, what, 11 months from the Iowa caucuses. Is it possible that tonight is a make-or-break moment for Hickenlooper? No, no. I think Hickenlooper is a very serious candidate. We served together briefly as governors at the same time, neighboring states. Um, No, I think it's much too early The first test will be the early primaries, Iowa and New Hampshire. But I think there's being a crowded field, uh, being a candidate from the West, uh, uh, while Hickenlooper's a very serious candidate because he was a good governor, you know, there's some drawbacks to being from the West because of the size of our region, because of the difficulty in uh, population base is not as strong. Funding is not as strong as some of the other candidates from California or the Midwest or New England. Oh, that's interesting. In other words, uh, there just aren't as many people who know you out of the gate. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes. And, and there's another reason, too. Uh, Western primaries come later than some of the major Eastern and Midwest primaries. For instance, the first Western primary is number four, and that's Nevada. Uh, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, some of the other primaries, Washington State, Arizona, come later. So you have to have an impact uh, early on to get seriously considered as a presidential candidate. So I think Governor Hickenlooper has to strike early, uh, strongly, uh, and, and I think his strength may be in that he's basically a moderate, uh, that the, the, the progressive side of the field in the Democratic primaries is very crowded. And if he can f- carve a space in the moderate wing, moderate the progressive wing, he'll be a serious candidate. I find it fascinating what you're saying. That is, those in Hickenlooper's own backyard don't actually cast any sort of ballots in primaries till much later in the process. So you don't have your sort of local folks rooting for you until later. That means surviving Iowa. That means surviving New Hampshire, where you're not as well known. I want to push back on this idea, though, that his strength is being a moderate. Don't primaries and caucuses appeal to the exact opposite, to the, the sort of extremes of a party? Well, in some cases, they do. Uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, there's a very progressive Democratic wing. A few minorities. uh, I think Hickenlooper's strength is Colorado is 
there's a lot of diversity. Hispanics, Native Americans, African Americans. What I would do if I were Governor Hickenlooper, and by the way, he hasn't called me, so I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure he'd take my advice. Maybe he's listening. I would concentrate, I would concentrate first on Nevada as a, as a state. I would be strategic. I think it's going to be tough to, to, to beat people like Bernie Sanders and others that have big organizations in Iowa and New Hampshire, Elizabeth Warren. Be strategic. Uh, come out as a Western candidate. Say that you're going to have your strength measured in, in primaries where there's diversity, where's, uh, where there's the West, where there's uh, good economic messages. I think Hickenlooper has a good economic message. He and I had similar economic track records in our states. Uh, so I do think that he has to be strategic because it's a very competitive field with a lot of candidates that have a lot of resources. And you're right, the progressive wing is the dominant wing in our party today. Moderates are like endangered species. I'm a moderate. I consider myself an endangered species. But, I, but I'm okay with the progressive candidates. I think we have to have a full debate on, on, on Medicare for all, on economic issues, uh, on issues relating to civil rights. So I'm fine with all this debate within our party. And, you know, even having a crowded primary with a little nastiness is okay with me because I think the party needs to define itself. Okay, do I hear you saying that if John Hickenlooper doesn't fare terribly well in Iowa or New Hampshire, he should hold on through the first Western primary? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, for instance, I, I had to leave after uh, New Hampshire, although I, I, w I made the first run, the first top tier in Iowa, because I ran out of resources, and you don't want to go into heavy debt. So I would strategically say, look, measure me on how I do in Nevada. Measure me on how I do in New Mexico and Colorado and, and, and some of the Western primaries, Arizona, because I think the nominee won't be settled until later in the primary process. I don't think you're going to see a crowning of a candidate in Iowa and New Hampshire in the first few primaries. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting some perspective on what it is to be a Democratic Western governor in a crowded primary field for president. Bill Richardson joins us, former governor of New Mexico, who ran in 08, a field uh, back then that included, of course, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, and a man named Barack Obama. Uh, Bill Richardson, here's one way that you went about trying to establish your bona fides with the public. This is a commercial featuring you and what sounds like a rather unimpressed gentleman as you apply for the presidential job. Okay, 14 years in Congress, UN Ambassador, Secretary of Energy, Governor of New Mexico, negotiated with dictators in Iraq, North Korea, Cuba, Zaire, Nigeria, Yugoslavia, Kenya, got a ceasefire in Darfur, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize four times. So, what makes you think you can be president? <laughs> Do you wish experience mattered more in primaries? Well, well, yes, yes. And I was a governor. You know, when I was running, I thought that my background, my resume, and the fact that we had elected governors before for president, Clinton, uh, Bush, Reagan, w was an asset. But I ran at the wrong time against a guy named Barack Obama, and the Democratic electorate wanted inspiration. They wanted a, you know, a, a candidate with a lot of glitz. And, and somehow the rest of us 
in the field uh, that included some very competent people like Joe Biden and Chris Dodd and Hillary Clinton that, you know, we didn't have that uh, inspiration of uh, President Obama, who I think turned out to be a good president. So, uh, yeah, I, I wish experience mattered. And I think that people are going to look at Hickenlooper in a positive way. Private sector guy. He was mayor of Denver, governor, uh, good governor, uh, you know, steady. Uh, I I think he, he could get some traction, but it's right now too early to tell, despite this town meeting that will happen tonight. It's just too early. Uh, people don't make up their minds until they start voting. Do you sense a hunger for glitz this year? And is John Hickenlooper glitzy enough, if so? <laughs> no, I, I think this time it's issues. People want to know what you're going to do. Uh, it can't, We just can't be the anti-Trump party. I think people want to know what you're going to do about uh boosting their economic status, about Medicare for all. I think they want to know about what you're going to do about our foreign policy, where we have uh, forsaken our world leadership, what you're going to do about climate change and renewable energy. And if you look at Hickenlooper's record on a lot of these issues, the domestic issues like energy, like job creation, uh, I think they're going to see a candidate that 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 has enormous potential. That That's what I think. But Again, uh, it's too early to tell. On the energy question, though, it may be that the progressive wing in the party doesn't think he's progressive enough. Uh, did you like running for president, the rush of it? I loved it. I loved it. I got to know the country, uh, not just Iowa and New Hampshire. I also got to know a lot about myself. I, I, I knew that I had the what is called the eye of the tiger, that I wanted to get in there and talk to people. I loved uh, talking to voters. You know, I hold the world's handshaking record in one day in the Guinness Book of World Records. (laughs) I know that's a little outdated now with all this social media. That's how you communicate now through social media. But yeah, I I enjoyed it. I I learned. I wish I had stayed longer, but realistically, uh, I knew that the public wanted a decision between Hillary Clinton and Obama. It quickly became a two-person race. And that's what I would avoid saying to John Hickenlooper. You know, just be strategic. Uh, the candidates that have previous organizations and have run before in New England and Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, they're they're going to be tough to beat. So be strategic and where you say this is where I need to be tested. You said you learned something about yourself running for president. I wonder. I wonder what. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm still trying to figure it out. So I, I, I really, I really felt that uh, I felt good because I, I was ready to go all the way. I, I, you know, the the endless campaigning, the endless scrutiny. I mean, I, I, I won't say I enjoyed all that, but but it showed that uh, you know I was ready to 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 keep a commitment to public service, and I've been out of office since 2010. And today I have a foundation that works on protecting elephants, uh, chimpanzees, North Korea. Uh, I I work on issues relating to uh, getting hostages out of uh, dictators. So, you know, I kept my commitment to public service. I, I haven't retired. I'm still active. All right. Looking at the race so far, where are you leaning in terms of an endorsement? Or is it far too early to be asking you? Well, it's too early, but uh, I like four candidates. I mentioned John Hickenlooper. I mentioned, uh, I'm going to mention 
Castro, Secretary Castro. I'm, I'm a Hispanic, and I want to see him do well. Uh, the two that I right now uh, I'm leaning forward is Joe Biden, my friend. Uh, I hope he runs. And then a young man who is a neighbor from El Paso, Beto O'Rourke. I, I had a very good meeting with him for a couple hours before he announced. I think he has something special out there. Uh, it's like when Obama was running, people would say, well, what do you like about Obama? And I said, well, there's something very good and special about him, but I don't know exactly what it is. So um, I think this is, uh, I know I've, I've mentioned four, but I think like most voters, I'm, I'm, I want to see them out there uh, hustling and testing each other and in debates before I, I make a commitment. I also think it's fascinating, you know, to what extent one's support for a candidate is a balance of the issues and then of the intangibles. There's so much that's intangible that you've described about a candidate. I suppose that speaks to the glitz to some extent. We have less than a minute, Bill Richardson, but in terms of a a Beto O'Rourke, for instance, is is it the intangibles with him? Is it the issues? It's the intangibles. It's that, uh, he excites a crowd. He talks about bringing people together. He talks about bipartisanship. He talks about solutions that uh, sometimes are uh, progressive, other times are moderate. Uh, there's something about him, how he connects with people that attracts me a lot. But at the same time, uh, I like the fact that John Hickenlooper is a governor. He's a Westerner like uh, right. I was. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Young Castro, a Hispanic. Thank you so much for having me. Bill Richardson, former governor of New Mexico, one-time presidential candidate. As former Governor John Hickenlooper takes part in a CNN town hall in Atlanta tonight, Richardson helped shed light on being an underdog in the Democratic primary. We'll be right back with whether robots are going to take our jobs. This is CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For as long as there have been robots, there's been the fear that they'll take our jobs, or even worse, take over. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Let's just say reality is a little more nuanced. We ran into a robot recently named Clark. He, it, works at a recycling facility in North Denver, sorting what can and can't be accepted. And he sorts milk and juice cartons and coffee cups. He's made by Amp Robotics here in Colorado. Amp is based in Louisville. The company's name is actually a bit misleading. The robots aren't what's really special. It's the software behind them, the artificial intelligence that Amp has developed. We visited their lab as part of Disruptors, our coverage of startups and entrepreneurs in Colorado. AMP's shockingly fast robot has eyes that act a lot like our own, so it can differentiate between a tuna can and an OJ carton. Operations Chief Rob Ritz stands next to a conveyor belt of test trash. 
In the early stages of AMP, we spent a lot of time uh, in and around dumpsters and, uh, and accumulating different material. But this is pretty much AMP's house stock now of, of recycled material that we keep here uh, to test our robots on. So is this your cooling white strawberry and mint oil of Olay body wash? Not mine personally, no. <laughs> Away from the noise of the lab, I sat down with Rob Ritz and AMP Robotics sales director Ellen Howe. Howe explained that with artificial intelligence, their robot is able to learn. It learns patterns. It learns colors. It can learn down to a barcode on a can so it could tell the difference from a Budweiser can and a LaCroix water can. And the materials do not have to be singulated on the belt, which means laying flat on the belt. As long as a portion of the material can be seen, then it can be identified. But its eye is not biologically built like my eye. There are some similarities to human biology within the software. We use what we call artificial neural networks to identify the material. So the way this software is structured is that it does not operate in the way that traditional software did, where it says, if it is this, then do this. For example, if it is red, then it must be this. This operates off this vast series of examples, these visual examples, that we have fed into these neural networks with our own process to train them, to teach them what the crumpled, folded, distorted materials are in the waste stream similar to how you actually learned material of all types when you were very young. Now, I think of the key aspect of learning as making mistakes. I mean, certainly when I tried to learn piano, it was not a pretty picture. So did you find that the robot had to make mistakes for you to improve the neural network? If the robot makes a mistake, that is recorded by the vision system as well. And then humans are going to go back and take a look at what it missed and label it and then it's going to teach it and it's going to learn again. So as an example, cartons are not recycled a lot in the United States. Only 18% of cartons actually make it into recycling. You mean like milk like, cartons, right. orange so juice? So think of, think of your carton that has sort of that glossy outside and it could be your orange juice, it could be a soup or a broth. And those are pretty tough for the robot to learn because there's so much variety. So I always go back to my favorite morning, you know, horizon red half and half carton. (laughs) You know, it's got to know what that looks like compared to, say, a Tropicana carton. And it's really got to learn those patterns and those colors. So that's been a challenge. How much is the robot? The robot is less than a quarter of a million dollars. And usually the return on investment is within two years. How is it that they're recouping the costs? It has to do with savings on labor, and it has to do with the improved efficiency and the um, purity of the bales that are created when the robot sorts and the robot's accurate. You use the word labor, and there's the natural concern. Are you in a business to replace human beings and take people's jobs? Rob, I have a feeling this is not the first time you've been asked this question. (laughs) Yeah. The challenges our customers have are that where they do have people in these facilities, it's a very dangerous, dirty, and often dull job. And so they have difficulties actually staffing. So most of the customers that we work with are understaffed. 
they may be operating two to three shifts per day. And some often measure their turnover in a matter of weeks. They have a very difficult time keeping people in these jobs. I can't help but think, as you've described this, of that scene in I Love Lucy, where they're trying to keep up with the chocolate conveyor belt, (laughs) and, and how difficult that must be, and how exhausting it has to be visually for a person to be doing that kind of hyper-vigilant scanning. Yeah, the person is doing hyper-vigilant scanning of material while reaching across a moving conveyor belt filled with unknown objects that could be dangerous and then also exposed to elements because these facilities are open to the heat of the summer and to the cold of winter. So you can see why it is a very challenging job. This robot is keeping really specific tabs on the trash we generate, on what's recyclable, on what's not. That must generate a ton of data that can tell us about our consumer habits, about how things might improve so that more becomes recyclable, that we're wasting less. I mean, this is just like a treasure trove eventually, right? Absolutely. So there's an opportunity here to ultimately increase recycling rates. The, the rates not in the U.S. are hovered about 30%, I believe, across the country. But because of the general cost of recycling, these robots with their performance could help decrease those costs overall. There are also adjacent opportunities with this, including informing consumer product companies about what types of materials are being recovered, what are not being recovered. How do we go back into the design loop and actually influence, potentially, materials that are, can be more recoverable, more recyclable, and have those integrated into the consumer product worlds. Do you think in your off time, or maybe even here at work, these things are going to get so smart that we should be afraid? I, I know it's a science fiction type question, but there's this natural fear, I think, among people that machines will get so smart that they will outsmart us. I think there is the chance in the waste and recycling industry that this artificial intelligence will be smarter than people. Because we are amassing so much information and data, it's going to know the waste stream better than any person. As I mentioned earlier, there is a lot of turnover in the sorting jobs in these facilities. That is knowledge lost every time someone leaves. Because even when a human comes in, they have to be trained and taught this is a number one plastic, this is a number two plastic, this is certain types of cardboard, this is certain types of aluminum we want, and it's a very diverse stream of material. So in this case, this artificial intelligence can become smarter than people, and it's a total accumulated knowledge. But with that said, these robots specialize in recycled material. That's what they know, that's what they've been taught, that's all the artificial intelligence is is ever exposed to. So the idea that this robot is going to go down to the state capitol and start passing laws is not something that you're immediately envisioning. (laughs) Absolutely not. It's also bolted down to the (laughs) conveyor belts on steel. The robots are coming. (laughs) 
Rob Ritz is Operations Chief at Amp Robotics in Louisville. Ellen Howe is Sales Director there. The company uses AI to help sort recycling. So when it comes to trash, artificially intelligent robots do the dirty work. As we heard, they also reduce turnover and increase the bottom line. But what about other industries? Let's ask a futurist. Thomas Fry is founder of the Da Vinci Institute in Westminster. He has consulted with companies like Disney and Caterpillar on their changing industries. NASA has also been on his client list. Fry was an engineer at IBM for many years. And welcome to our program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. With artificial intelligence, are there jobs you see going away and never coming back? Um, Eventually, but you have to understand that we're automating tasks out of existence, not entire jobs. Um, So as an example, if somebody was a meter reader, they'd go out and read the the meters, the electric meter, the water meter. Um, The job involved more than just going out and reading the meters. So when that information starts being sent in electronically, then the people don't have to physically go out and read those meters. Now, the job itself doesn't completely go away. It gets redefined. It gets combined with other jobs. Naturally, it can be done with fewer people, but the job itself doesn't go away. So it's not a a direct one-to-one replacement, and that's what's important to understand. I realize that there is a, a blunt instrument quality to my question, in other words, to say, is a job going away or not? Because you say it's about a collection of tasks. But is the net result fewer jobs? Um, actually, I think it it actually creates the opportunity to create more industries and create more jobs. I think we're actually moving into an, an era of super employment. I think we're going to have more jobs than ever before in all history. It's just that they won't be full-time jobs. They will be gigs. They will be gigs. So the gig economy is going to get stronger. But the gig economy often doesn't come with health insurance, and it has all kinds of drawbacks. Yeah. And nobody's teaching people how to become freelancers. That's a huge omission in our society today. I mean, go out and try to take a course in becoming a freelancer. Now, a typical scenario is somebody graduates from college and they can't find a job. So after a couple months, they pick up a project then they'll pick up another project and another project. And before they realize that they're working as a freelancer, Uh, doing it begrudgingly, thinking the world somehow owed them a full-time job, never realizing that a freelancer lifestyle could be the preferred lifestyle because they can say yes to the things they're good at, say no to the things that they're not good at, and actually take control over their own destiny. You know, this is fascinating. It makes me think of the author David Wan, who lives in Golden. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he wrote Affluenza and Simple Prosperity. And if I recall correctly, his point is that if if there are massive gains in efficiency, say because of artificial intelligence, people indeed might work less, uh, but they also might enjoy life more and, you know, leave the traditional rat race behind, not be so focused perhaps on keeping up with the Joneses. Broaden this for me. Do you think this is actually the key to our bliss, <laughs> Thomas Fry? Uh, well, uh, first of all... Um Somebody with a toolbox is more valuable than somebody without. So theoretically, somebody with a robot is more valuable than somebody without. Somebody with AI will be more valuable than somebody without. So this is just another tool that we have to work with. And and so whether it's automation or, or when we when we started getting tractors 100 years ago, yeah. um, that replaced a lot of labor. 
Um, nobody worried about the jobs that went away at that time. Um, Is that true? No one worried about those? Um, it just was kind of natural part of life. And nobody is doing surveys. Nobody is doing studies on how many jobs were lost because the tractor came into play. Um, that all started happening later on. Now, one of the things that we don't think about very much is that the internet has increased our awareness of all the stuff happening around the world. It gives us um, kind of this bird's eye view of, of kind of the big picture of all these shifts and changes. These and, sort of employment trends and these technology trends. Right, uh -huh. right. Um, but, I mean, even the gig economy, I mean, for years and years, the way Hollywood worked is whenever a new movie project came into play, it attracted writers, directors, camera guys, lighting guys, uh, actors and actresses. And they all came together for this project. As soon as it was over, then they all disbanded and they formed around other projects. It's very organic in nature. You're not saying that this is by any means new. You're just saying it's going to become more widespread. Yeah, and more corporatized, if you will. Um, because, uh, the, the internet is such a sophisticated communication tool. It's en enables us to align the needs of a business with the talent of individuals in far more precise ways than ever before. So rather than hiring somebody on for full-time job, we bring them on for two months or two weeks or two days or even two hours. And the tools we have for doing that are going to become much more precise in the future. But again, this has all kinds of repercussions for how we build our healthcare system and how we build benefits and uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of people who are in school today, you know, as young as kindergarten and who will be meeting a very different economy. Is is our social system set up for this? Are our schools, insurance companies, etc.? Um, uh, we're going to have lots of gaps. We're going to have lots of problems that we have to deal with. Uh, I mean, just with the driverless economy, the cities are set to lose about half their income, but that'll happen over the next two to three decades. How so? Explain how the driverless economy relates to that. Well, if I can if I can summon a vehicle to pick me up and take me to where I want to go and it picks somebody else and takes them to where they want to go, then suddenly I'd no longer need to own my own car. If I don't have to own my own car, there's somebody out there with a fleet of vehicles and somebody that buys that fleet of vehicles is going to want to buy it at the cheapest place possible. They're not going to be paying sales tax at uh, the highest rate. So um, somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of uh, revenue for, for cities – in the area here comes from the sales tax that comes from car sales. Now, uh, if I bought a fleet of cars and I was going to service the Denver area, as an example, I'd probably buy them in Wyoming if I could because I would avoid the sales tax and all that. And uh, Although that, you're often taxed on based, based on where you are, like where you live or where you work. But this, yeah. is, this is fascinating. Cities have to be keeping this in mind. Absolutely. With the, Absolutely. If the driverless economy manifests. Yeah, a lot of cities also – Depend on all the, the, the traffic tickets and all that. And if there's oh. nobody driving, then suddenly that all goes away along with the court systems and the DAs and the, um, all, all of that whole justice side of things. Could we talk just briefly about retail and retail sure. jobs? What do you think that sector should be braced for? Um, so I wrote a piece recently on how long will it be before we reach peak uh, e-commerce? So 2018, it was, it's, it's real interesting because uh, finally we reached 10% e-commerce in 2018. That means 10% of all retail dollars were spent online. Now, 
if you would have mentioned that to somebody in the late 90s, they would have thought you were uh, out to lunch because they were predicting the doom and gloom of, of Main Street and all the bricks and mortar. And all of that was going to go away. But now, 25 years later, essentially, we've just reached 10%. Um, so, now, what, Why hasn't it been faster? It's, it's fascinating. You just hear so much about the dying Main Street and the rise of Amazon. The, the 10% just doesn't feel like what the coverage reflects. You know? Exactly. Exactly. But if you think about what 100% e-commerce would look like, that means that we we have no place to go. We have no bars, no restaurants. We have no place to go out and be around other people. That's not going to happen. So somewhere there's a natural upper limit to to e-commerce. And, and what is it? Because we still have as as humans, we're social creatures. We need to be around other people, and um, and and so, what is the the upper limit? And I, after th- working through this, it looks to me like the the upper limit may be as low as twenty percent e-commerce. Oh my goodness, that's actually a bright piece of news, if we can call it that, for someone in retail, because there's been a lot of doom and gloom. Yeah, in in retail, um, it's it, every industry is different. I mean, there's there's some like uh, selling movie tickets, selling um, airline tickets, uh, uh, thing, things like that, theater tickets. That's all done online. But then uh, some of the stuff like uh, the groceries and clothing and stuff, we still need to feel the cloths. We still need to squeeze the melons and, and all that. And so we, uh, we, we we're resisting a lot of that. Thomas Fry, futurist with the Da Vinci Institute based in Westminster, I guess I'd like you to talk to a parent today or a young person. You mentioned how ill-prepared we are in some ways for the gig economy, which you you see strengthening. What's the advice you have for preparing for that world? It's it, it's it's really tricky. I think there's a huge opportunity. I think somebody's going to come about and figure out how to teach people how to be freelancers because uh, that's a, that's a skill that we all uh, are, are going it's the business of you how do you, how do you sell yourself how do you promote yourself how do you write contracts how do you negotiate deals all of these things uh, are skills that are not being taught in in traditional schools that we have to we have to learn those things and and so those are those are very important but the we're we're also not teaching these job ready skills. I mean, what employers are looking for. Um, Do you think this happens in college? Uh, not very much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me give the, this example. Yeah, just in, briefly. In 2014, Facebook bought Oculus Rift, and there was an instant uptick in the demand for virtual reality designers, coders, experience creators, that sort of thing. And nobody was teaching it. And certainly nobody was teaching the Oculus Rift version of it. So for a college to actually create a new curriculum, they have to hire the instructors, create the curriculum, and then recruit students. And it's a seven- to eight-year pipeline before any talent's coming out of the back end. Nimbleness is going to be key in this. Absolutely. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I could talk to you all day, I think, Thomas. He's futurist Thomas Fry, founder and executive director of the Da Vinci Institute based in Westminster. Tomorrow, our series on artificial intelligence continues with a fast food stop. Welcome to Good Times. Order when you're ready.
Colorado's Republicans are still reeling from historic losses last year that put Democrats in charge of state government. To try to reverse their fortunes, a new organization aims to field more moderate GOP candidates. But CPR's Benta Berkland says that may put them at odds with other wings of their party. Republicans were expecting election losses in November, especially given the president's low approval rating in the state. But the results still shocked them. In the Colorado House, Republicans now hold just 24 out of 65 seats, the lowest number since the 1960s. For us to get clobbered across the state, it's just not acceptable. That's Republican Representative Lois Landgraf of Colorado Springs. She and two former Republican lawmakers have created an entity called Friends for the Future to try to turn things around. They see it as part of a larger rebranding the party needs to stay relevant in Colorado and appeal to unaffiliated voters. They're raising money to recruit and train candidates for the Colorado House. We sat back and said, who's doing any of this stuff? And we pretty much came up with, we were not happy the way the various elections were run, the campaigns were run, any aspect of what went on in this last election. Traditionally, Republican House leaders are in charge of raising and spending money on these races. Landgraf's group could be at odds with that effort. House leaders who plan to continue in this role in 2020 declined to comment for this story. Republican political consultant Dick Wadhams says shakeups are common after a bad election, but this kind of group isn't. This is unprecedented. And we'll see how it works. Wadhams feels like party supporters are frustrated with the way things are currently going. You can certainly build the case that what is the harm of having a second entity out there raising money and supporting candidates. Fundraising is one thing, but some GOP insiders are concerned the new group could cross an even bigger red line by encouraging primary challengers. Friends for the Future says primaries aren't the focus, but it's also not out of the question. Former House Assistant Minority Leader Polly Lawrence is one of the group's founders. I'm not going to rule out that there will be primaries, especially in open seats. We have donors across the state and we have energized individuals who want to see the Republican Party win some of those seats back. But they also recognize that we haven't been running the right candidates. We haven't been training them. Lawrence wants to recruit more women and people of color. The group's founders also want to move away from social issues to focus on small government, infrastructure, and business issues. And Lawrence is open to candidates who don't strictly follow the Republican platform. Some groups want to exclude anyone who doesn't agree with them 100 percent. And I think that's a losing strategy. Republican Dave Williams is one of the House's most conservative members. He's reserving judgment on this new group, but says he doesn't want it to take away from the main House fundraising operation. He says Republicans need to be united in their efforts to expose what he feels is a radical, job-killing Democratic agenda. I don't think we need to apologize for our party or its platform or its principles. I'm going to welcome anyone who wants to to take on Democrats, help ensure that the pendulum swings back and balance is restored. Ultimately, the real measure of success will be at the ballot box. Republican Representative Larry Liston of Colorado Springs isn't involved in this new soft money group, but is aware of it. He says any group will need to make a strong case to donors heading into 2020. 
that their strategy can succeed. The donors are not going to just blindly write a check to anybody, just like I don't think they wrote a check last year. They believed in what we were doing, and I feel bad for our team, so to speak, is that we let them down. Colorado's House Republicans may be unified in the belief that the party needs rebuilding. But this new group highlights just how divided they are on the best way to do that. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. I want to invite you to a special live event, the Climate Change Variety Hour. It's an evening of hope and real-world solutions with music, science, even comedy. We tape April 8th at Newman Center at the University of Denver. Tickets at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.